Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. College basketball was changing in the mid-1980s and for the next two to three decades, and three coaches were at the helm. Gary Williams, Jim Calhoun, and Rick Pitino are discussed in the book Boston Ball by Clayton Truder, and he's on today to tell us all about this book and these three amazing coaches coming up in just a moment. My journey in the Sports Jersey Dispatch. Welcome to my journey of learning more about sports history, and we're going to do it by learning about the great athletes and the uniforms that they wore, as they both tell a lot about the games that we love and have watched so much throughout most of our lives. These are the chronicles I'm going to share with you on what I've learned through my journey in the Sports Jersey Dispatch. Hello, my friends of sports history. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com and the sportsjerseydispatch.com. And uh, we are here today to talk about a very interesting book that's come out recently. The title is Boston Ball, and we have the author of that book, Clayton Truder, on with us. Uh, Clayton, welcome to the Pigpen. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be on the Pigpen. Pigpen's probably my second favorite member of the uh, Peanuts family. I mean, I like Peanuts. I mean, P Pigpen's a great character. I always steals the scene. When Schroeder's playing piano, there's this one guy who kind of dances like this. He goes, and that's all he ever does. <laughs> that's my favorite Peanuts character, but Pigpen is a big honor for me, certainly. <laughs> yeah, with the, the dirt and the dust always sort of emulating off of his uh, body there. So, <laughs> Oh, no doubt. <laughs> Well, well, we'll try not to spare you the dirt and any other odiferous things coming off of the pig pen here today. Uh, we're going to talk about a great uh, scent here, and that's your book that you have out, which we'll get to in a moment. But this is your first time in a pig pen, and just for the, the sake of the listeners and, and myself, we'd like to learn a little bit more about you and what made you become uh, an author of multiple uh, sports books. And we'll talk about some of those in a little bit here, too. Um, my, my name is Clayton Truder. I'm a uh, history professor at Norwich University in Vermont. It's a small military college. I uh, went to graduate school at Boston College, where I got my PhD in history. I've written a couple of books. My first book is called Loserville. It's about Atlanta's pursuit of pro sports in the 1960s and 1970s, not going exactly as intended. My second book, my new book, is called Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. And it's essentially the story of how three college coaches getting relatively little attention um gary williams at boston college rick patino at boston university and jim calhoun at northeastern um started their careers in relative obscurity in boston in the early 1980s and then went on to fantastic coaching careers that ended up in the hall of fame later on it's about a little a little known chapter of uh, basketball history but one that had a profound impact on the game not just because of the coaches uh success later on but also because of some of the stylistic innovations they brought in all all three of the coaches played a very up-tempo, aggressive, trapping style of basketball when that had become unfashionable. And in many ways, that small ball approach became the way that a lot of teams played in the later part of the 20th century and early 21st century as a result of their efforts. Yeah, that's so. Wow, that's a 
definitely a mouthful there and definitely three big names in college basketball of the last uh, 40 or 50 years. Now, what was sort of your inspiration and uh, what got you onto this story of, of these guys uh, you know, all coming from the same area and sort of going up through the ranks almost simultaneously? It sort of has two origin stories. The first one is about 10 years ago, I was in graduate school. And uh, when I was you know sick of working on my dissertation, I would go out on a winter night and head over to the Harvard gym or the BC gym or the BU gym or Northeastern or one of the other area schools in Boston and catch a college basketball game. And it occurred to me that three Hall of Fame coaching careers began in Boston at roughly the same time in Patino, Williams and uh, Calhoun, and nobody had really written about it. Um, at roughly the same time, my I always have a book going that's separate from the, my working kind of scholarship type stuff. And I was reading a book by John Feinstein called The Legends Club about the relationship among Dean Smith at North Carolina, uh, Coach K at Duke, and uh, Jim Valvano at, North, at NC State. And it struck me that there might be a possibility of writing a similar book about this subject. So once I finished graduate school, once my first book had come out, which was based on my uh, dissertation, I was looking for a second topic, and it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. I handed in my first book to the publisher in like early May of 2020, and I was looking for something else to work on. Well, like, you know, everybody was kind of at home and seeking out different projects. And uh, I got this, I got, I brought this idea of Boston Ball to my agent. He thought it was a good idea. We found a publisher with the University of Nebraska Press. And I started making phone calls. And since a lot of people were at home, it was very easy to get in touch with people. So I cranked out like 95 interviews with this book with, uh, wow. I, I spoke with Jim Calhoun. I spoke with Gary Williams. I spoke with many of their players from, from each of these teams. I spoke with their opponents. I spoke with other coaches. I spoke with media members. I cranked out 95 interviews in basically three months, wrote the book in like a year and it takes forever for books to come out. So it's finally out now, but uh, it's a book that was only possible to do so quickly because of the pandemic, both having the time to do it. And then also just having a lot of people uh, sitting around looking for something to do themselves. Well, I, I love the different angles that you took. First of all, 95 interviews, uh, that's uh, hats off to you on that, uh, especially on one subject. But all the different angles that you took uh, from the players, the coaches themselves, and the opponents, you're looking at this thing from all sides and uh, you know, really probably garnering the respect of what these coaches deserve. So that's pretty cool. Now, did they, uh, since they were all coming from the same area and they came up, high school level and college level in that area. Did they ever like, did they play games against each other and uh, have some interaction? Well, they're all coaching in college at the, in the same place, but they each grew up in a little bit different locations. Jim Calhoun grew up just South of Boston in a town called Braintree. Um, Patino grew up in uh, on Long Island primarily and went to college at UMass, which is in Western Massachusetts. And um, Gary Williams is from New Jersey originally, right in the Philadelphia area, and went to school at Maryland. They come together all in their in their in their coaching careers in Boston, and they all coach against one another during their their time in in town. Certainly, uh, and interact through that. Particularly Patino and Calhoun, Boston University and Northeastern were in the same conference, a league then known as the ECAC North. The ECAC was this very loose conglomeration of basically everybody who wasn't in a major conference from Maine to like South Carolina was in the ECAC <laughs> from like the 1930s. I mean, other than in like football, I mean, and for basically all their sports from like the 1930s through the end of the 70s, once you have the conference formation with the Big East 
starting in the late 70s. These teams are all jumping around looking for a new a new conference. The ECAC North was a marriage of convenience that included schools that had absolutely nothing to do with each other. You had two private schools in Boston, BU and Northeastern. You had the Northern New England Public Universities, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. And for some reason, Buffalo and Canisius end up in the – out in Buffalo, you have Canisius and Niagara ending up in this league, Colgate – the league didn't end up lasting that long. It, it took a bunch of different forms. It's now called the, the America East. Um, but uh, teams in need of a conference quickly formed leagues, and BU and Northeastern continued their long-standing rivalry in that. And in that case, Patino and Calhoun had some hellacious battles over a five-year period when they were coaching in the same city at the same time. Sometimes neither neither of these teams drew well. Sometimes there'd be like 300 people in the gym watching a game coached between Rick Patino and Jim Calhoun, which is pretty tough to believe thinking about it now. But like Boston is very much a pro sports town. Like people will say this. It is certain, despite being a college town, it's not a college town in the sense of like Ann Arbor, Michigan or Madison, Wisconsin or, you know, Manhattan, Kansas or something where it's like well, there's one school that is the dominant force in town. There's a lot of relatively little colleges who have their support among like alumni and 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 current students. But in terms of big time support, it's the pro sports teams that dominate town. So nobody really has this monopoly in the way that, say, the University of Michigan or the University of Wisconsin does in town. Yeah, that, that's uh, some interesting points there. You know, you know I, so a lot of people forget, you know, that the Big East was, well, at least somebody old like me, that uh, you know, sort of a, a new thing, even though it doesn't exist anymore and sort of evaporated and turned into some other things. But yeah, that was late 70s, yeah, you're right. There was uh, Big East was just coming on. That was a big deal. And like when teams like Georgetown and, and Providence with Patino were coming up and the ranks and becoming these uh, basketball powerhouses in, in college basketball is kind of interesting to watch. And some of these, uh, you know, older schools that were traditional uh, powerhouses had to start respecting them a little bit more. And a lot of it's to do with these coaches like Calhoun and Patino and Myers, you know, doing that. So glad that you were able to tell their story. Yeah. Just in the context of Boston, you've got like the big East did not want Boston college. BC had an okay basketball history. Bob Cousy had been the coach there for a little bit. Chuck Daly had been the coach. They'd had some good time periods. They'd been to the NIT finals in 1969, but this was not this was not Kansas or something. This was not a major basketball power. The school they wanted, the Big East, was Holy Cross in Worcester, which is about an hour down the road. Worcester said, or Holy Cross, the leadership said, nah, we don't really want to get involved with this big time sports. We'll stay doing what we're doing. I mean, Holy Cross in the 40s and 50s, they won a national title. They went to the final four. This was a major basketball power. It was probably the best school in New England and among the best schools in the East. This was what they wanted. They settled for Boston College basically because BC convinced them they could get some games at the Boston Garden. Because one of the things the Big East wanted was to have games in the big arenas, have games in the Spectrum in Philadelphia, in what becomes the MCI Center in D.C., have games at Madison Square Garden. Having the Boston Garden, too, was just an extension of that. And they said, hey, we can get you some games there. So, th so they said, okay, we'll let you in. B.C. ends up being very good in the early years of the Big East with Gary Williams and before him, Tom Davis. They have they go to the Sweet 16 four out of five years. So it proved to be a very good move on their part. And Holy Cross has never quite been the same since basketball-wise, but they were certainly not the Big East's preferred school in, uh, in New England. 
Oh, very interesting. God, I, I would almost think that they would be uh, following all of themselves to have somebody like BC uh, be involved in that. Of course, you know, like you say, maybe they're not the basketball power that we. But it was before it was before Doug Flutie threw that pass too. Yeah, they that's talked just about true. The effect being this thing that like BC was a good school, but it was basically a Boston area school that had local support. Him winning the Heisman Trophy, throwing that pass on the day after Thanksgiving, gives the school a much different profile, and uh, and I think the way it's perceived now is very much shaped by that. I I know that they, you know, I'm a Notre Dame fan. So I know, you know, at least football wise, you know, Notre Dame and BC would always play because of the, the Roman Catholic uh, foundings of both the schools. And, you know, they they sort of, they played each other throughout the years and had a a great series in the eighties and nineties with the the Holy Wars, I think they called it. So, but basketball, I know they competed in a little bit too. So, but, so I was aware of BC uh, before Flutie, uh, you know, not, recognize yeah. them as you know some a big threat but you know they were a team you know that you had to respect you know like you know Rutgers and some of the other teams like that but uh yeah it's just uh I mean it's, it's just still still kind of shocking to me that uh you know they're, they're wanting like ho- the holy crosses and Canisius's of the world not not BC and there but that hey you know times change and who knows as somebody that grew up watching Notre Dame, somebody who still cheers for Notre Dame, but then went to Boston College for graduate school. I can tell you Boston College thinks about Notre Dame about 50 times more than Notre Dame thinks about Boston College. They're somewhere like a little bit below Purdue, I feel like, on Boston College's radar. I mean, on on Notre Dame's radar. Boston College acts like Notre Dame's their big rival. I mean, it's a very, very odd power relationship. Like, BC BC fans, like, oh man, we got to beat Notre Dame. We got to get them on the schedule. (laughs) Notre Dame's like, well, if you know, NC State doesn't have time to play us or Purdue. Maybe we'll play Boston College. So it's a very <laughs> odd power dynamic. Oh, that's that's an odd way to look at it too. So, oh, very cool. Okay, now getting back into these coaches. Now, you know, I, I sit there and I think about, you know, these teams coming up, you know, especially Calhoun and, and Patino and sort of two different styles that took their teams to elite status. You know, I think of, uh, you know, Patino sort of having a, playing some small ball and, you know, three point shots just coming into to the rules and his guys are just, you know, go, shooting from beyond the arc and knocking people off and surprising people. Calhoun's like more playing traditional paintball, you know, throwing, getting that ball down low to the big guys and, and hammering the boards. And so how did these two styles, you know, two drastically different styles of coaching, at least strategy wise, both rise their teams up to the top. Well, I would say when they were in Boston, they weren't quite as different as they became. I think Connecticut certainly became more on the model of what you describe. But when when Calhoun is at Northeastern, they played kind of a small ball style, too. And it was one of those um, uh, necessity being the mother of invention type situations. I mean, Northeastern in the age of the big man in the 60s, in the 70s and 80s, they couldn't go out and get artists Gilmore and Bob Lanier and Bill Walton and guys like that. They had to recruit who they could. And they were fantastic at finding diamonds in the rough. Actually, Pitt, Pittsburgh is like their greatest recruiting territory ever. They they had they had an alumni who had connections with the Upward Bound program in Pittsburgh and channeled a bunch of players from that area. Um Mark Halsell being probably the best known among them. A lot of these guys, they seem to find from Pittsburgh, a lot of guys were like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, a little bigger than guards, but not quite the size of like being like a center or something who could just run like they were guards. I mean, the, the, the Northeastern just recruited guy after guy, seemingly out of Pittsburgh and the mid-Atlantic states who were these sort of tweener guys size-wise 
who who brought a degree of speed and physicality with them that was uh, sort of a, a hybrid between a guard and a forward. And they really ran over the competition in their leagues because of that. I mean, so many great players they got out of Pittsburgh and the Mid-Atlantic States that fit this model. So the kind of team that Calhoun coached at Northeastern in many ways resembled the small ball one might um, tend to would tend to associate more strongly with uh, with, with Patino and many of his later stops. Yeah, and, and Patino, you know, like I think, well, I think the rule for college and high school had to be right in late seventies, early eighties, or uh, maybe mid eighties. Because I don't think when I was in high school, I graduated in eighty five, but we didn't have the three point shot in high school. I'm not sure what college. I think it was right about the same time though. 80, 86, 87, uh, which okay. which worked because because that's the story of that Providence team that gets to the final four of his, which is his second year in town. He coaches at BU until eighty three. He's an assistant for Hubie Brown with the Knicks for two seasons. He gets convinced to, to move back into college by a guy named Lou Lamorello, who's the athletic director at Providence. They have a covert meeting in 1985 during the uh, Big East tournament. Like they're, they're at the game separately. And they, they walk to this restaurant that's like 20 blocks away and meet there, make sure nobody's looking. And then then the then the Providence AD gets Patino in his car, secretly drives him back to Providence that night. And they go kind of <laughs> tour the campus. And he's like, I'm sold, I'll take the job. Two years later, Patino is coaching that team to the final four. And in large part, it is because of the three pointer, because a lot of the other coaches were annoyed to have it. He said, I'm going to do what I have to do to win. So he has, he has Delray Brooks, who he gets from Indiana, who's a big character in John Feinstein's uh, season on the brink. You've got uh, pop Lewis. You've got Billy Donovan who goes on to be the great coach. And he tells them in the preseason, if you take a shot inside of the arc, you'll have to run five miles. So all these guys did was shoot three-pointers all preseason. They come in. Nobody else can shoot three-pointers at all. Syracuse took like 14 in the whole season, their first year. And I think Bayheim was mad about every one they took. Uh, Providence was taking like 20 a game, hitting like eight or nine of them. Uh, three of the top 10 three-point shooters in the league are guys from Providence. And it takes a team that's the bottom of the of the barrel in the Big East and makes them one of the conference's best teams and eventually gets them to the Final Four. So Patino very much made use of it that first year that they had in 86-87. Yeah, he he really changed a lot of people's opinions because '86 I was I was in college and I went to a Division two school here uh, in the area and I didn't play on the basketball team but a lot of my friends did so I I would get to in contact with night and the coach uh, of our local college Edinburgh University was a, a family friend of my family's so I'd, we'd have dinner every once in a while and I'd always remember talking to coach and talking to some of my buddies that were playing on a team and coach would always tell them especially the big guys if you guys try shooting from outside that arc you, you know you're going to run five miles you know, it's sort of the opposite you know the the, the three point that's a, it's just a a trick pony it's with your desperation at the end of a half and you're behind you know that's what that's for it's never going to be a, a solid point scoring thing and i think a lot of coaches and a lot of basketball people thought that way and patino may have been the one that really opened the floodgates and saw that people could use this as a weapon throughout the game and uh you know win some ball games by, by playing this you know the whole time all four quarters it seems like yeah it seems like virtually every coach in that period was kind of an, an ostrich about the whole thing they just thought it would go away if they didn't even think about it didn't use it i think it's very funny to, to listen to a college game or even a pro game i mean the pros have it from 81 onward listen to what listen to a game from that era 
when a guy hits a three-point shot in that era, it feels roughly like when a guy throws a 50-yard touchdown pass. Like, it just seems like such an impossible feat to hit a shot from, you know, 22 feet away or whatever whatever it was in that time period. Um, now it's just, you watch an NBA game, they're hitting 30 or 40 of them in a game. It's just such a commonplace uh, thing. It, it's, it's, it's remarkable how in just a generation that's changed so radically. And I can even remember when they first, when the officiating signal, you know, same as it is now, you raise two hands when yeah, it's a, a three-pointer, when it's good. And somebody correlated that to scoring a touchdown. Oh, this is as unique as a scoring, you know, like you said, a long touchdown play. They're, even the officials are signaled as a, a touchdown. You know, but now it's it happens so often that uh, these guys, uh, they're officiating, probably get rotator cuff surgery uh, from raising their hands up so much. I, I remember watching film of, uh, I think it was from 1989. It was a conference championship game in one of these leagues. And a guy on the other team hit a three-pointer. And the crowd reacted with this just exuberance like it was a game-winning shot or something like that. And it was maybe four minutes in, a guy had the gall to take a three-pointer and hit it. But it was, uh, you don't see fans react as, I mean, fans are a little more jaded, I guess, now. They just, they, they reacted as if it was just some, a remarkable, impossible feat that this guy hit a hit a shot from the top of the arc. Yeah, it, it really added a lot of flavor to the game because before that, in the early eighties, you know, it was uh, the alley oop or you know somebody dunking, and yeah, that was a big deal because maybe you'd see one dunk in a game, you know, if you were lucky. Uh, sometimes you wouldn't see that, but then you now you got this other exciting play that's sort of abnormal, hitting from the arc and giving you an extra point to boot, you know, for a fuel goal. That was a, a great thing there too. So very interesting, but I think uh, Patino was sort of leading the way and sort of the poster child of his program was a poster child of that three point shot and really made it in vogue. I think at all levels. Oh, without question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he goes on and coaches the Knicks and does the same thing. He has the quote unquote bomb squad with Johnny Newman and all those guys in the late eighties where they're just shooting it like crazy when, when the rest of the NBA really hadn't embraced it yet either. Yeah. That, the bomb squad was pretty interesting too. And your mass substitution in basketball and yeah. taking it to, you know, getting all these fresh legs out there and sort of taking the, the guys that have been out there for, you know, 20 minutes or so. Like, hey, what the hell's going on here? What are these guys going to do? You know, and then they start running all over the place and shooting like crazy. So, pretty interesting strategies came up. Now Calhoun, you know, how could he have, you know, connect UConn being such a powerhouse for so many years. Tell us a little bit about his coaching style and uh, what made him so successful. I think in some ways you got to go back to the beginning with Calhoun to realize why he was so successful. I mean, he's a guy who was basically the man of his household when he was like 14 years old. His father died when he was relatively young of a heart attack. Um, like he found out at a Babe Ruth baseball game, he's playing in the outfield and somebody yelled, Hey, Jimmy, go home. Your dad died. Like, I mean, very cruel kind of, I mean, just yeah. incredibly cruel kind of kind of thing. And he's like, when he's 15, 16 years old, is working as a stone cutter on headstones is like his job after school. I mean, he has a million jobs he's doing to help support his family. His mother has a heart problem. He doesn't go to college for two years out of high school because he's just working to support his younger sisters and his mom and stuff. And finally, an opportunity arises and his head coach from high school convinces him to finally take take the shot and go to college. He goes to a, a Division II school called American International College, which is in Springfield, Massachusetts. He's a Division II All-American and then gets into coaching at the high school level. He um, he very much was a, I guess I would say he was focused on the fundamentals of the game, like teaching him day after day throughout the year. Like he was 
he was a um a parks and rec director in the town where he was a high school coach and he made use of that as the opportunity to go talk to these guys while they were working like okay today you're going to work on dribbling while you're while you're taking uh you know passes for people going to the park kind of thing today you're going to work on your jump shot today all these very particular aspects of the game and after a summer of this his teams ended up being much better as a result of it he was in a town called Dedham Mass like his first like the, before he got there they'd won one game the year before and two years later they're in the state semifinals um, this got the attention of Northeastern University, who was desperately in need of a coach right before the 1972-73 season. He becomes the coach in um, late September 1972. Like practice starts in mid-October. Um, the reason is the previous coach had gotten an offer to go to the FBI Academy. He was a young coach himself. He was 30 years old at the time. He said, well, going to the FBI Academy will get me a really good job with the FBI. This is probably a more steady job than coaching a Division II basketball program that is in the process of, tra- of moving up to D1. So he left to join the FBI, and they quickly needed a coach. So they called up the best high school coach in the area, and uh, Patino ends up getting the job and, and going from there. I mean, he he very much installed a, a, a kind of a blue-collar toughness in his team's um, he went to a school that had run a very conventional, traditional kind of slowdown offense, and slowly over time, over the course of the 70s, moves them into a more up-tempo approach. And that's in part because of his recruiting. The guys he gets in Pittsburgh facilitate this. Um, he gets a lot of these very athletic players out of the mid-Atlantic states who had been under-recruited. Um, his teams, I mean, Northeastern, before he got there, recruited guys from basically a handful of towns right around the city um, to go there. They Once they got to D1, they had to recruit very differently and and this Pittsburgh connection, as well as connections in Baltimore and in, in Rhode Island, ended up facilitating them becoming a very strong uh, program by recruiting a lot better athletes than they had beforehand. Well, that's like polar opposite, going from a slowdown kind of offense to, to more of a run-and-gun style. You know, that's that's pretty drastic. Oh, very much so, yeah. But he was always very focused on, on having very sound fundamentals, too. And had all these very rugged rebounding drills kind of thing where guys were like tackling each other. And you, if you didn't get the rebound, you had to stay in the drill until you, until you got it. And there's guys who'd be in the drill like 30 times in a row until they finally got a rebound with like a bloody nose and like a busted lip and stuff like this. So like he had very tough teams as well. I mean, the, the guys who played for him told me games seemed easy. The practices were way more brutal than any game you ever had. So once you got a game, it seemed like a day off by comparison to, to having a practice with him. Yeah, totally different era. Probably in this day and age, you'd probably be incarcerated for having a practice like that because I don't think the players uh, today experience what uh, coaches did at all, at all levels. You know, oh, very, very, very different for all three of these coaches. Yeah, I mean, you look at like like they were they, they referred to the like guys can practice twenty hours a week now. It's called the Patino rule because when he's at BU, like those guys are like fifty hours a week doing basketball stuff before class, after class, up until they went to bed. Yeah, the hell, hell was studying. We're here to play basketball, right? <laughs> well, no, no, no. Actually, they, they, it's, it's one thing that's funny is like people think about big time college sports and these guys not being that invested in academics. It's really shocking the degree to which all these coaches, at least in this time period, were very focused on the academic side of things. Like when I talked to Williams and Calhoun, it struck me they remembered what these guys majored in like 40 years later. They're like, oh, yeah, he was a sociology major. I couldn't possibly remember what the, you know, a guy I hadn't dealt with in 40 years. Remember what he majored in? That's that's I mean, the, after the 40 years, they're probably at the point of retiring from their careers at the. <laughs> oh, totally. Absolutely. Like, like, uh, yeah, I, I I suddenly had a lot of friends 
you know, on, on Facebook and LinkedIn and stuff who are all between like 60 and 65 as a result <laughs> of, you know, doing the, doing, doing the book. Oh, well, welcome to our old man club. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now tell us about our, our third coach, Gary Williams. Tell us a little bit about his, his story. Gary Williams comes from uh, right outside of Camden, New Jersey. Uh, and he was a, um, he was an excellent high school player and, Wanted to play at Penn, didn't didn't actually get into Penn academically, so he ends up at the University of Maryland, where he's a starting point guard for three years under a guy named Frank Fellows. And at Maryland, he meets a guy named Tom Davis, who is a graduate student there at the time. Tom Davis is getting a PhD in history, but he's also an excellent basketball coach. He's from the Midwest originally, and uh, Davis eventually gets the job at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. And um, he eventually brings uh, Gary Williams with him. And they install an absolutely fast-breaking, run-and-gun style of basketball there. And Lafayette ends up beating out the likes of Temple and Villanova and Drexel and stuff like that to get NIT bids back in the 70s when the NIT was a very big deal. Davis eventually goes on to BC and brings Williams with him, where they take that same style with them. And that's really how BC got so successful in the early Big East. They were a team that just ran for 40 minutes They've had full port, you know, full court press the whole game, fast breaking on offense the whole game, and uh, Williams very much um, learns from Davis. Ends up getting his own job at American University in D.C. Um, he's coaching a team that plays at a National Guard armory in Arlington, Virginia, and nonetheless uh, gets them to the NIT. And uh, when Davis decides to leave Boston College, Williams ends up taking over for him, and they continue that very aggressive style of basketball. I mean, I think I, you go back and watch them. They, I mean, you think of like UNLV in the 80s and, and Houston with five slam and jamma. They're very much playing the same style of basketball as, as those kind of teams. Uh, I mean, there's actually in 1982, there's a fantastic Elite Eight game between Boston College and the first version of that five slam and jamma team. I mean, Drexler's in it, Elijah Wan, I mean, as well as in BC, you have Michael Adams and John Bagley, guys who go on to excellent NBA careers too. It's really a fantastic game. There's not a ton of footage of it, but. Uh, if you see footage of it, it it looks like any kind of UNLV game, like a, a decade later. Wow, <laughs> well, that's great stuff, Clayton. You you were exiting out of the college football season uh, as the bowl games are starting to wind down here. Basketball starting to heat up, and I'll tell you what, this this chat here is has got me pumped up for some basketball. And uh, your book is going to take it to that next level as we get to enjoy the basketball season. So why don't you share it with myself and the audience? Where can we get a copy of Boston ball? Boston ball is available on, on all your well-known online retailers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, uh, target, the, all, all, you know, all those, those kind of places. You can also get it through the publisher's website, the university of Nebraska press. Sometimes they have promo cards. There was one that just expired a couple of days ago. I had, but your best bet right now, go to go to go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, you can follow me on social media, and the next time there's a, a, dis a good discount code, I'll uh, I'll be posting that as well. But uh, yeah, it's available. And if you buy a copy of the book, uh, message me on uh, Facebook or Twitter or any of the social media sites, and I'll send you a signed book plate as uh, thanks. Okay, and, and why don't you give us uh, some of your, your social media handles here? We'll also put them in the show notes and the, the link to the Amazon uh, to the Clayton's book as well if you're driving the car or anything. But Clayton, go ahead and give us a social media. Sure. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Clayton Truder, C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R. I'm Clayton Truder on, on Facebook. I think I'm the only one there. I'm a, it's a picture of a nine-year-old me holding a basketball. And uh, <laughs> and I'm on LinkedIn as well as Clayton Truder. And love to, love to be your friend and all that kind of stuff with everybody. And uh, 
I write for a wide range of other venues on typically sports related topics. I write for uh, write for PBS Next Avenue or I write for Hockey News, uh, a lot of other uh, city and regional magazines as well. And uh, if you find Boston Ball interesting, I'm, I bet you'd like my other work, too. Okay, and uh, maybe we'll ask you to send us some links to that. We'll put them on uh, either show notes or and on the subsequent article that we're going to write on on Sports Jersey Dispatch, jerseydispatch.com, and uh, we'll get that posted and get you hooked up to Clayton in that way too. Uh, folks, we're also going to put this up on our YouTube channel, Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel, so you can enjoy that and uh, see see Clayton here, and maybe not so much me, but you can put your hand over my my face uh, as it's coming up here to so you don't scare the children or anything. And, uh, you know, Clayton, we really appreciate you have a much better background picture though <laughs> well that's uh it's 120 years old now so it's <laughs> a background i cheated a little bit but um you know clayton we really appreciate you coming on first of all writing this book and telling the story of these three coaches going sort of the grassroots of of their starts of their careers and you know their ass- assemblage and uh, rising to the top of, of the, the college basketball world and uh, sharing it with us and coming on here and talking about it today. And we really appreciate you. Oh, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. A special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.